This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 97 of the Travel Writing World podcast. As you'll remember from episode 94, we're publishing four of Bill Colgrave's interviews here on Travel Writing World. Today's episode is the third interview, this one with journalist and editor Michelle Jana Chan. She's an award-winning journalist and travel editor of Vanity Fair. Let's listen in. So we're continuing the travel writing conversations that accompany the publication in 2017 of the travel writing collection Scraps of Wool, and I'm Bill Colgrave. Today we're delving into the demanding art of travel journalism. Deadlines, editors and circulation really matter. And I'm talking to a writer who has one of the most coveted of posts, the travel editor of Vanity Fair. In addition to having a BBC television programme and contributing responsibilities at Condé Nast Traveller. She's one of my favourite people, the lady with a cocktail of travelling names, Michelle Jana Chan. She also lives as travel writers should do, and this year, before taking up the Vanity Fair post, MJC went backpacking in Japan with her husband and three little kids, the youngest only two months old when they set off. Now, MJC, despite the cocktail of names that you have, you were in fact born and brought up in London, I believe. So what is your family heritage? And has it been a spur to your travelling ambitions? Absolutely, it has. In fact, I was born at Hammersmith Hospital and we are in a studio in Hammersmith right now. So um, that's not a very you know, far-flung place of birth. But um, my... Family does come from very far-flung destinations. My second name, um, Yana, is actually soft J, by the way, Bill. Um, Yana is Czech. My mother's side is Czech. They escaped um, after the communists invaded in 49, and we didn't go back until 89. So they um, came here as refugees to the UK. My dad's side, he's from Guyana on the northeast shoulder of South America, which is a country not everyone is really aware of. There's three col- former colonies. One's still a dependant, um, French Guyana. Next door is Suriname. And then next door is Guyana, now what was British Guyana. Suriname was Dutch. And so it's wedged between Brazil and Venezuela. I'm giving you a bit of geographical location because a lot of people don't know where it is. And it's beautiful. It's rainforest, um, 95% rainforest. But the coast is very West Indian. It's on the arc of the Caribbean. And so both of those influences were were very strong for me. And my 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 father came to the to this country, the mother country, as it were, in his twenties um, as an economic immigrant. A kind of very uh, potent phrase nowadays. And when did you first go to Guyana? I went as a teenager, and we have lots and lots of family there, um, and in the Czech Republic. Well, from, you know, now the Czech Republic, what was Czechoslovakia? And um, the, his generation, or his, his parents' generation, 
is fading fast, really. A lot of the kind of members of the family who I loved very much um, in the last few years have been passing on. But he um, he and I still have a really strong connection there. He and I have travelled there together. I've, I've kind of taken him back when I've had work trips there. And... It, it feels like you know that when you're in the pulsating rainforest there, I feel like mm, like I can I sense this is kind of where I'm from in part. But in truth, when I go back to the rolling hills of the Shumava Mountains in Bohemia, I scratch my head. Like that is more of a struggle to connect with. I remember wandering up the river to get to Angel Falls, which is not too far away from from where you were. So, Not far at all. So, in fact, Roraima, which is this extraordinary table mountain, a tepui as they call it locally, yeah. um, a mesa in Spanish, it, the, probably the most you know, spectacular one is on the border of Venezuela and Guyana. It's very climbable from the Venezuelan side, but it's yeah. not from the Guyanese side, so of course that's on my list. And yeah. there's this microclimate on top with lots of endemic species. It's quite an extraordinary and they're the, they are the, the flat mountains, the flat-topped mountains, which exactly are right. very alluring because of uh, you get up there and you've got have you got flat space once you do get. I've never been up. Well, quite. I mean, Table Mountain's a good example in Cape Town, but it's exactly the same um, type of topographical feature. And, um, and and some say that Conan Doyle's The Lost World was based on Mount Roraima, which is you know, yeah. the specific one. Which is the one you're the talking two. about. Yeah. It is, yeah. The, I remember going down, down through the Sahara and going for four or five days, nothing. And then you, you come over a ledge and you see these sort of purple forms in front of you, which is the Hogar Mountains, which is like, a little bit like that. But what they are are mountains which have been created out of volcanic plugs and all the, the excess mountain has, has been worn away. So all you've got is the flat-topped volcanic plug. Beautiful. You get up there with such serenity up at the top. But I think... The um, Venezuelan and Guyana ones are different, aren't they? They're not volcanic. No, they're not. I think it's um, kind of hard bits of rock, for whatever reason, kind of eroded around the edge. But in truth, I can't give you all the background to that. It is... um it, you know, what you were just, just describing, though, it, that's the stuff that quickens our pulse, Bill. I know yeah. you and I share this. I mean, it's the names of the places um, that really inspire me to hit the road and I know they do to you too. You I think you MJC have what what John Steinbeck calls the disease of travel, a disease that is essentially incurable. And I think I saw you re, re, uh, use a German name for that. Um Fernweh, wasn't that right? Fernweh, exactly yeah. right. It's I mean I don't want to cure it, of course. <laughs> I don't want any medicine. I love kind of being plagued with this disease. Fernweh is we don't have a, a, a word for that in English, which we should, but um, the transliteration would be Wonder, away sickness. It's a sort of wanderlust. It's a wanderlust of sorts, yeah. but it's it's when you're home and you really want to be away anywhere. It doesn't matter, just not at home. Like homesickness would be when you're away. And Scraps of Wool is, is a book designed to feed the people who have fernvey and, and the disease of travel. Now, so you were in London... And what was the first thing that made you think I want to be a I want to be a travel writer or I want to be a traveller? 
I think a traveller is, is probably how it originated. I think having a refugee and economic migrant from two distant lands as parents was a huge part of it in truth because you you do you do definitely feel it's such a gift that you are on the whole planet, your your feet are planted on a planet rather than a, a neighbourhood. And um, that was coupled with an, another extraordinary gift, which was that my father was a pilot, an airline pilot for British Airways. And it was in the good old days when we used to get very um, cheap airline tickets. And he was a, just a brilliant dad to have because although a lot of airline pilots might have had the same perks of the job, he was the one that... that um, was known in the airline for having his family tag along. So we would fly to Nairobi for two days. He would be having to take a jumbo back 48 hours later, but we would you know, jump in a little plane or jump in a saloon car and drive as quickly as we could to Lake Nakuru, Lake Nervasha, possibly jump in a little plane and go to the Mara and then whiz back and he would kind of skid onto the tarmac and jump into his jumbo. <laughs> and I kid you not, that was the, the kind of life that we grow up with. And we'd do that in Lusaka, in Zambia, and go down to Chiawa um, on the Zambezi. I remember doing it in Vancouver and scre- like for 48 hours to Vancouver, that's a big old distance. And then we'd scream up to Whistler. None of us could ski very well. I remember we were wearing anoraks. It was minus 30 with a big windshield factor. And then rush down a few pieces and then scream back to Vancouver. <laughs> and he was, a, he was a legend for that. And my mum was a trooper too, because when she... You know, occasionally I'd go on my own, but when... He went as a family, of course, she was mopping up. So, um, you know, the pair of them as parents has been an extraordinary thing. You sent me a, a lovely recommendation for, for Scraps of Wool, and, and you've been a great supporter and contributor. But I liked what you wrote to me. You chose Elspeth Huxley's Flame Trees of Thyca and Isaac Dinson's Out of Africa, famous to many people, uh, with this endorsement, which I think is the very essence of, of Scraps. Elspeth Huxley and Isaac Dinson's two love songs to Kenya and East Africa have carried me from my South London childhood to dusty roads around the world, my triggers for longing to another land. I was eight or nine years old only when I read Flame Trees of Thyca, about Huxley as a little girl in Kenya in the early 20th century. I wanted to be her, of course, and I still kiss the walls, as Huxley did, when I leave somewhere I love, so that I too will return. And do you still do that? I do, Bill. I still kiss the walls if it's somewhere I want to return, which is pretty much, you know, all the time you can find wonder, I think, wherever you go. So you've been, for the last year, you've been writing for, or for a full year, you wrote for Continental Traveller a little piece every week called Where I Would Like to Be Right Now. Sometimes. So each week you've had a, there's a picture and you're, uh, and you're writing about the place. Sometimes you chose exactly the places I would not want to be, such as Monaco on Grand Prix Day um, or, or the top of Torta in Verbier where I would much prefer to be in the bar at Car 4 rather than standing at the top of Torta <laughs> and wondering if I could dare go down. But mainly it was the opposite. Um, alone in the desert in Sudan, I, I sat and imagined myself where you were writing and, and pictured. When were you there? I was there just a few years ago for The Telegraph. They didn't run the story yet. Um, they commissioned me to go because there was this corridor 
that um, either the State Department or the Foreign and Commonwealth Office said it's okay to travel along the Nile corridor. And so I, I told them this, and I said, "Look, it's not South Sudan, it's not Darfur, it's this, you know, it's this, you know, this small sacred area that we can all access." So they dispatched me on my way, and then the editors changed. I came back with this killer story, in my opinion, and um, the, the next editor was too conservative to run it. But it's still there, alive, because frankly, nothing probably has changed in the last few years. I um, rented a four-wheel drive. I headed north along Osama bin Laden Highway, I seem to remember, and um, and found these pyramids which smaller footprint than what than what there is in Egypt and the, you know, the premise of the story was while Egypt was having so many troubles there's also pyramids to be had further south and it's and been alone are, there that was oh, yeah. extraordinary i mean alone amongst pyramids truly and and not only kind of at one particular site but the entire journey i didn't see um anyone i think that wasn't sudanese possibly there were some egyptians on the border up at on the, but but you know the, it was t- entirely local. When I was at these at these pyramids, I just sat on the sand, and there were a few goats were moseying around. It but reminded it was... me of going. I was in Algeria, and I'd separated from the rest of my colleagues, and uh, I was very much in the in the desert. And they, uh, but for a little moment, we were on a sort of stony bit, and. Um, Surprisingly, there was a tiny few spots of rain and a few sheep hanging around. And I just remember that moment because I just felt so happy just being there. And I sort of put those moments like that, which I call sort of um, pain-in-the-chest moments of, mm. of happiness of being somewhere. Uh, I felt that then and a few other times. And, and I can see you could have got that in the I did. I think I say to myself at those moments, I say, remember this, Michelle, yes. remember this. Like, pinch me, I can't... But I do, I try, I try to take this kind of... Men- burn it mentally into my mind. It's not, as you know, just a location, but it's also what, the magic and the moment and the wonder of that instant in time. What is that? Uh, I'm reminded of, of uh, Nicolas Bouvier's wonderful piece in his book, The Way of the World. In the, in the end, the bedrock of existence is made up not of family or of work or what of others say or think of you, but of moments like this when you were exalted by a transcendent power that is more serene than love. Life dispenses them parsimoniously because our feeble hearts could not stand more. No, it's just, I'm, I'm, I've got chill bumps. Our feeble hearts could not stand more. It's exactly right. There is this sense of freeing, a transcendentalism, a, a liberation of sorts, a, a, uh, yeah, a, ri- a rising, it's the epiphany of, of life. Pagan, Burma. I've never been to Pagan but I, I, I saw what you wrote about it, and I sort of imagine it as, as one of the most peaceful places one could ever go. I think it was. I mean, that probably will bring us on to another subject we could explore, but it, you know, the, the tourism there is very concentrated now in Pagan. This was, I think, um, that when I, I wrote about wanting to be there, I was imagining it in 2008. It was just after um, Aung San Suu Kyi had been released from house arrest and... Um, the generals had, you know, in my mind, just switched clothes. They, they was in government still, but instead of in military uniform, in civvies. And 
at that time, it was still very quiet, and Pagan was was also a very serene place. Um, there was you could get around by bicycle. Uh, there was no one else at, the, at these temples, which are scattered around, quite unlike Angkor, which has these kind of yeah. huge monuments. These are smaller, um, smaller temples and stupas and what's kind of scattered over this big landscape on on the river um, Irrawaddy. And it's uh, um, I think that so much of that journey is kind of going up to the tops of these little temples and seeing the view because you see you see all the spires peeping out. And also meeting the people because, of course, at that stage, I mean, now it's almost 10 years later, but at that stage there weren't many visitors. And I remember one man particularly who he didn't know I um, had anything to do with the BBC. Um, I was just I was just pretending to be a tourist at the time. They weren't giving journalists visas. But he um, he, he brought me into his home and he had a makeshift homemade radio and he tuned in to the pips of the world service and to show me you know without a lang- you know without a common language that he cared about what was going on in the outside world uh, one of the things i really like about your writing is the way that you manage to bring in little quotations like that from the people you're you're talking to so it gives your i think it's very clever it makes the reader think that you are a, a real insider you write with sort of you, you you write with a sort of musical instruction, allegro con brio, and it's a luxurious oh, brio. Very kind. Like um, um, another place I was rather jealous of when I read that was was Sané. I'd love to go to Sané in yeah, Yemen. In the Yemen, Sana- yes, yes. Um, in fact, during the course of of creating. Scraps. I wrote to Tim Mackintosh Smith. Have you ever mm. met him? I haven't, but I, I emailed him before I went and asked him if I could. And I think he was uh, out of town that day. But he—I mean—he's made a life. Yeah, he, he wrote the uh, the Ibn Battuta trilogy, and I've been reading Travels with a Tangerine. So I wrote to Tim, and he wrote back, "Oh, Bill, I really want to help you, and I've got lots to contribute. But right now, I'm still in Sanae, and there's a war going on, missiles flying overhead. I'll be back to you soon." That was a year and a half ago, and he hasn't come back to me yet, so I think it's an excuse to go and visit him. I think it's a good reason. You don't need a reason to go to Sanaa. It's a, it, is, it is one of those cities that, um, well, I, I guess it competed in the past with Damascus, which, of course, is both cities are struggling at the moment. Um, but you, you are, again, another place, and I, I guess that's a common denominator. We keep talking about places where there's no, no, no other visitors, and then, strangely, that's a big part of... Why so many of us travel is to to not be surrounded by by tourists, and yet, of course, I'm in the business of encouraging people to hit the road. So you've now um, you've taken a teeny break from the from the journalism to write a novel based on your father's homeland and your own homeland. Well, in parallel, Bill, I would in say. In parallel. <laughs> um, I, yes, yeah, so, somehow the you know the universal juggle we all do. Um, it's exciting. It's coming out next year. It's called Song. It's my first um, first novel and first kind of long-form writing. I've only contributed to anthologies up until now. I do feel like I've got a travel book in me bursting to come out at some point. But for the time being, Song um, is published by Unbound next year. And it's a tale of a young boy who travels as an economic migrant from southeast China, Guangzhou, across the world to Guyana, formerly at that time British Guyana. So this is the late 1800s 
when slavery had finished in Guyana and they were um, they were they were peopling the plantations um, with labor that was called indentured indentured servitude, which that system, um, you know, some people say is tantamount to slavery too, but others would say it gives people a chance to travel from one side of the world to the other. Song, this young boy, was really looking for his fame and fortune. And it's a rags to riches, a kind of classic tale of um, someone trying to make good in another part of the world. Well, we have the same pu- publisher, and let's hope... That song is the success it deserves to be. I had the privilege of reading it. Now, the um, the books that you chose for to help me out of Africa, Flame Trees of Thyka, um, and three or four more unexpected, like Jason Elliott's wonderful book about um, Afghanistan and his visit there as an as a nineteen year old. I think we'll skip over that because Jason and I will be having one of these one of these talks be- before long. Well, you won't be having one with Chatwin. I will not be having one with Chad. Alas, alack. We all wish he had such an extraordinary view of parts of the world now that, that some people aren't going to. I think he would given, have given us a very incisive um, recount of countries that now are considered by many off-limits. You've put a passage of him in here, which it was his preface to The Road to Oxiana by Byron, and was in his book, What Am I doing here, which I love, but I mean, I'm I'm a fan of all his work. Um, He wrote about Afghanistan. But that day will not bring back the things we loved, the high, clear days and the blue ice caps on the mountains, the lines of white poplars fluttering in the wind and the long white prayer flags, the fields of asphodels that followed the tulips or the fat-tailed sheep brindling the hills above, Chakacharan, and the ram with a tail so big they had to strap it to a cart. We shall not lie on our backs at the Red Castle and watch the vultures wheeling over the valley where they killed the grandson of Genghis. We will not read Babur's memoirs in his garden at Istalif and see the blind man smelling his way around the rose bushes. We'll sit in the peace of Islam with the beggars of Gazagach. We will not stand on the Buddha's head at Bamiyan, upright in his niche like a whale in a dry dock, We will not sleep in the nomad tent or scale the minaret of jam. And we shall lose the tastes, the hot, coarse, bitter bread, the green tea flavoured with cardamoms, the grapes we cooled in the snowmelt, and the nuts and dried mulberries we munched for altitude sickness. Nor shall we get back the smell of the bean fields, the sweet resinous smell of deodar wood burning, or the whiff of a snow leopard at 14,000 feet. And, of course, we know that there are no snow leopards at 14,000 feet in Afghanistan. Oh, Um, Bruce. Um, There are a lot of people that say they don't read him because it's a mix of fiction and fact, but that is why we love him, of course. Exactly, exactly. And that's the... um, In fact, I was talking last week with Alexander Freiter, who who commissioned um, Chatwin very often, and he was the one who gave me the beautiful quote when when I presented that piece to him. And he said, of course, Bill, it's all bollocks bollocks and you should know that better than most but we have to let the boy flaunt his genius somewhere and wasn't he just and uh, alex was talking he also talked about being the contributing uh, sorry the the commissioning editor at the observer and when chatwin came in a, f- a room full of people would fall silent and wait 
because he was that attractive a man. And so all sorts of people who'd never spoken to him for six months would suddenly find a reason to come and ask chat, ask Alex Freighter something while Chatwin was there. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, well, he, in his luminous face, which kind of, it, it dons some of his covers. Um, but he, you know, and also if you knew how he writes, I mean, I'd be completely starstruck. Or you know, or verbal diarrhea, one or the other. Um, but I, he, he was an interesting writer of, of that time as well. Not only just a beautiful, hauntingly beautiful writer, but but he pioneered, I think, um, a genre that is so strong now, which is this this mixed um, travel writing genre, which has some memoir and it has and the, you know the memoir and doc and documentary part documentary and part fiction of course you know which you know creative license as we might call it um part journalism but kind of dialogue and i he he was he brought all this together you know journal um s- s- snippets and snatches that he'd written on the backs of envelopes and uh, you know he was really one of the ones that that did that first because and we had the copy. talent to be able to to, to produce disjointed pieces well, and everyone quite. were just happy. I think that Patrick French with Young Husband was maybe was the, created that form of, of I'm following something and then introducing myself in the, in, in, in the same book. I think he, he started a new uh. genre like that, which um, many have followed. You put in your list um, Barry Lopez' Arctic Dreams. Which I think is one of the that is another forerunner of today's sort of travel writing, where where somehow he allows the land to teach him rather than him trying to tell people what it's all about. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, we are it has changed. It's not so much now. I came, I saw, I conquered, and writing about getting to the tops of mountains and planting flags and first footfall because you know it's harder and harder to do that so it is much more about about the weaving of of your of oneself into the literature and and you know we live in a very narcissistic age where um you know this is part and parcel of you know of how, how we're wired almost and so it is this visceral relationship i think on a cellular level that one gets from being within the landscape and that's what we're writing about a lot now thanks michelle one last important question You've got the chance of taking one writer or just one book to your desert island. What's that to be? That is to be Freya Stark's A Winter in Arabia. Um, it's an easy choice for me. She, I think, is the greatest travel writer um, of that century, perhaps beyond. And I think what is extraordinarily special about Freya Stark is that she was travelling to parts of the world in the 30s that are considered now to be quite intrepid. So so when I went to Yemen half a dozen years ago, my peers you know, looked at me aghast and said, why are you going to Yemen? She went, I think the first time in 34, and then wrote Winter in Arabia a few years later, the first man or woman to the Hadramot from, from outside that region. And documenting... What I also love about her documentation of that, of that time, which is so prescient, it was that... You really felt the urgency that times were changing then. Like already, like there was this sense of she was capturing kind of these last instances of tribes of that time, and and you felt because the you know this anxiety that it was all disappearing, which is something that we feel constantly now. Um, but but she was perhaps one of the first that did it, and her writing, of course. So, so there might be many adventures, but then on top of that. 
She is the most lyrical, poetic of writers. Thank you very much. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. 